Hi, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buchan, Communications and Insights Assistant at Amber. Last month, I spoke to Ian Hawkins, who works at Carrington Crisp. We spoke about how the different stakeholders in the management education sector expect the role and offerings of business schools will change in the future. We also spoke about his views on the future of work in regards to the technological disruptors. Here's that interview. Hi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career, please? Sure, yeah. So my name's Ian Hawkins. Um, I work at the moment for a company called um, Arrington Crisp. Uh, We do research and uh, consulting for business schools and higher education institutions, universities and the like. Um, I've been with Arrington Crisp now for approaching two years. Previous to that, I was... Uh, working at a company called Blue Sky PR, who you may be familiar with, um, in their business education practice. Uh, I did that for about nine, just over nine and a half years, I think. Um, and, and so, yeah, I've been working in the kind of business school, university, MBA space for 11, 11 odd years now, I think. Well, it's great to um, talk to an expert in industry. Um in your latest blog for Karen and Crisp, it was discussed that the wants of students from their education largely matched those of the needs of employers. Do you think that business schools are kind of closing this gap? Do you think they're doing enough to help students build these like wanted and needed attributes? Well, that's fair. I mean, that's that's the reason that business schools exist, isn't it, really? So, you know, I, I think they're all trying, obviously, and there are... There are business schools and there are business schools and there are business schools and they're all different and they all have different approaches um, and different constraints um, uh, and different ways of operating. Um, so it's a difficult question to answer generally. And, and, and so I think the answer really is is yes and no, uh, unfortunately. Um, I, I think, you know, some schools you know, are, are a little bit behind the curve. Um, or they they simply don't have the skills or resources to deliver uh, learning on things that are you know becoming quite critical now things like AI cybersecurity uh, etc. Um, and and you know where where a, where a business school has access to a parent university which may have more resources and faculty. Um, I think it's it's quite a, quite good practice, and it, it you know it would be a good idea for business schools to link up and to collaborate with the parent university more than perhaps is currently happening at the moment. Sometimes business schools find themselves in a little bit of a silo. So I think making the most of the opportunity available of being part of a wider university structure is is something that some schools could do. Um, I think that there are business schools that are, obviously a lot of business schools are private as well, um, and so they don't have that opportunity. And, and yeah, as, as I said, I think some are doing a really good job of, of introducing the things that are necessary um, and are going to be necessary uh, in the future, and others are, are, are struggling slightly um, just, to, just to keep up. So going back to what the students want, um, we've obviously been in the industry for a little while. Do you think that the expectations of students and what they want to gain from their MBA has changed? And if you do, do you think that business schools are evolving quick enough to meet those expectations? Uh, I mean, I, I think that the expectations of students have changed. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I think people, you know, were, were pretty happy as students that if they were going to go and do an MBA, they were going to get a, a generalist 
business education, um, where they became competent across a number of management domains um, so that they could take their career to the next level. And that's what it's always been about, is, is career progression. That remains the case. But I think how that learning is delivered um, and the types of learning, as we've already touched on, has changed in that period. And I think what students want is, um, you know, we did a report recently, actually, uh, our latest tomorrow's MBA report, which um, we've been doing for 10 years now. So, as I said, 10 years ago, you know, an MBA was an MBA, but then the financial crisis happened and things have changed fairly dramatically in the 10 years since that. Um, the MBA has survived. There's always been this question about, you know, the legitimacy of the MBA. Um, but I think now that there's a lot of consideration that schools have to be given to uh, the content that they have within an MBA program. Um, and the skills that business leaders will require in the future, um, as much as the technical knowledge that they'll onboard. And I think that has changed a lot as well. I think schools would be mindful to look at, you know, and understand a broader like, range of the changes in society um, in order to plan for the future and, and, and create an MBA program that is going to be legitimate five years, 10 years down the road. Um, you know, the, the MBA will continue, I'm pretty sure of that, but a lot of programs may find themselves smaller than they have in the past. Um, you know, the online element is huge. I think the, I'm sure we'll come back to this, but the, the current situation with the pandemic it, it has created a, a situation where a lot of people have had to go online and, and do things online way before they were perhaps ready, but also has meant that they've accelerated how they, that provision, um, I think that in the future, uh, a lot of schools might find that the income that they receive from MBA students will reduce. Uh, they'll have to find new ways to generate income from new products, um, you know, and, and, and have a look at their business model and, and perhaps develop a new business model to cope. Um, I think for, you know, uh, this is a change that has been happening over a long period of time, but for some candidates, an alternative to the MBA will be a master's degree, master's degree, which have grown massively over the last decade. Um, and I think that business schools, you know, are also facing other competition as well. So there's, there's for the MBA, there's competition within the business school with the likes of master's management programs, a raft of specialised masters and other degrees that are, that are being offered. But then there's the external competition as well uh, from from tech providers, learning providers, um, and, and and other institutions that aren't universities and business schools. So there's there's this whole changing landscape, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how the MBA and business schools navigate that moving forward, I think. So you talk quite a lot, like, quite radical changes in the sector um, you kind of envisage for the future. Do you think that the role of accreditation bodies like Anvan VJ will have to evolve in response to these changes? And how can how do you kind of see that happening? Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on accreditation. Um, so there will be people that will have a better answer to this than, than I do. But, um, I mean, obviously, accreditation bodies like yourselves uh, exist to, get, you know, to assess the quality of what happens at a business school and the quality of provision to students, uh, quality of processes, etc. Um, so if the industry is changing and what business schools are doing is changing, then the accreditation bodies will have to 
change as well. Um, you'd argue that perhaps they have to change quicker and have to uh, almost predict the changes in the industry uh, to stay one step ahead of the game. Um, because if the schools are changing and what they're doing is changing, uh, then, then at the very least, uh, the accreditation bodies have to be at pace with the schools as they change in order to, to assess the quality of what they're doing. Um, so yes, they will have to change how they do that. I think that's a difficult question for me to answer. Uh, I'm sure there are people at AMBA and the other accreditation bodies that, that have very good ideas about how they're going to, to change moving forward. But, um, yeah, I don't have that answer. <laughs> Um, so we recently launched a report that suggested that MBA's students are like quite optimistic about the technology in their careers. They see it as something that will benefit their future work by making it more efficient. Um, obviously some were a bit scared about it maybe impacting their jobs um, in a negative way, but most were fairly optimistic. Do you think that business schools are doing enough to ensure that students' careers are future-proofed ahead of technology's disruptors? I think that, yeah, there's lots of good stuff going on at business schools, and there has been for a while, um, around innovation and disruption and digital disruption. Um, so th there's clearly an, you know, an ongoing effort to provide the skills, as I said earlier, to, to students um, that, and the skills that students will need moving forward. Um, I mean, being optimistic about technology, I guess that, you know, for students, the question is, is a, is a robot going to take my job, um, as you've alluded to? I don't know if business schools can influence whether that happens or not and how, how people will cope with that. It's very difficult to, to predict the future. Um, but, yeah, um, I'm not sure how to how to go on from that, really. I think, um, you know, uh, there is good stuff happening at business schools. There's lots of stuff taught around around the topic of, of you know, the changing workplace. Um, you know, in, in, in a report that we did, I think it was last year's MBA report, um, it, the, 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 the tone was that there's this rapid change in skills sought by employers. And, and what that means is that, you know, what an MBA student learns during their studies could be out of date before they've, you know, paid back their loans to studying. You know, I think that is a concern, is that the, the ra rapid change of how things are moving along in the workplace um, means that by the time you've finished your degree, it's almost out of date what you've learned. And I think schools have to be very mindful that they provide learning that allows students to be adaptable and flexible and to kind of go with the changes in the workplace. So I think that's the challenge, really, rather than, you know, adding on bits and pieces to the MBA program or to different master's programs about you know, innovation and disruption. It's about almost inbuilding um, resilience into into MBA students and to, to business school students so that they can cope with the changes moving forward. And I think also students will almost unwittingly know this. I think the next generation of students, digital and disruption and innovation is, is, is almost their language in a way that it hasn't been in the past. So I think that they're open to and ready to that kind of challenge almost implicitly because they understand digital better than perhaps a lot of the people at the schools do. Um, you know, it's been how they've grown up. So, yeah, I think the challenge is in, is in for, for business schools to, to structure things so that it makes sense to students um, and it makes sense to, to employers moving forward, not employers now, but employers five years, ten years down the line. I have to ask you a question on COVID since it's um, all everyone can speak about. But sure. um, do you think that there'll be, obviously it's 
change the sector dramatically as you've already talked about with um, courses going online maybe before they were ready to but do you think that there will be a long-term impact from COVID-19 on business schools and the MBA more specifically or do you think that everything will kind of snap back to what it was? I don't think there's any way that things will snap back to the way that they were and I think there's, there's a few reasons for that. The main reason is that I think that as I've said, business education and the provision of business education and higher education in general has been changing and adapting for a while now, but it's been more of an evolution. Um, so, you know, technology has come, into, come to the fore, has come to the table. Competition from outside of educational institutions um, has, has come to the fore. Um, and so there's been these kind of pressures and challenges that business schools have been facing for a while now. And they have been changing and, and, and reacting as a result of that um, to, to, in, to all the points that we've, we've already discussed. But what, what this kind of COVID-19 situation has, has created is, is an environment whereby they've had to fast forward everything. So everything that they were doing in an evolution kind of way, they've almost had to kind of fast forward and say, all right, well, we're actually going to have to do this now. Remote learning across all of our programs now, not build it in over time not see how it goes, you know, suck it and see kind of approach. But, but we have to do this now and we have to make it work. And, you know, I think there's an opportunity in that because I think if, if business schools had not, um, you know, had just carried on to, you know, evolving relatively slowly to that kind of change and to, to the changes that they were seeing in, in, in education, then the, the risk was that, you know, other institutions smartly for instance or, or the big ed tech companies that are out there um would would steal their lunch effectively and say okay well if you're not going to move into the tech space if you're not going to offer online and blended programs um more proactively more aggressively and more efficiently and at a better cost because one of the problems with with business schools and higher education is how expensive they are and obviously competition uh, from outside of the traditional space is going to drive uh, possibly a more affordable um, model of, of, of business education and of higher education generally. So, you know, if they're, if they're looking at universities and saying we're going to offer degree programs or short courses or lifelong learning or whatever it might be, executive education, um, we're going to do it cheaper, we're going to do it faster, and you don't have to go to the campus. That's the way that things have been moving anyway. But if business schools have just continued to evolve slowly in that way, then there's a good chance that um, they'd have had the rug pulled to under their feet from these these new ed tech companies. So, you know, to just kind of summarise that rather rambling point, I think blended will become much more popular going forward, blended options, uh, a, a mixture of online and offline learning. I, um, I, and I think schools are developing competencies much quicker now as a result of this COVID uh, situation. I think schools will also have to think a lot more about their lifelong learning offer how they can drive income through that channel rather than relying on traditional one and two year degrees because that's where we're seeing it's where a lot of our research is seeing innovation in the, in the industry is the executive education and the lifelong learning side of thing because people's careers are lasting much longer um, people are uh, you know our, our research said that uh, I think 40 or 50% close it's off the top of my head close to that number of students that we surveyed uh, for our See the Future study recently, said that they expect to be working into their 70s. Um, you know, and if that's the case, then 
people are going to have to learn again and again and again. It's not a case of doing a degree in your 20s or doing an MBA in your early 30s, um, and then that's the end of your business learning. Uh, so that's something that schools are going to have to develop and look at. And I think that post-COVID, that will really come into sharp focus. That's just a bit daunting here. I'll be working into my seven days. Um, but yes, very, very true. Um, just got one last question for you. Um, and it might be a bit cheeky, but I was really enjoying reading some of your blogs for Carrington Crisp as I was researching for the podcast. And I was just wondering if you'd give us a sneak peek of what you're kind of working on now or what kind of themes you're thinking about right now. Uh, right. Uh, for, for, for blogs? Yeah. Or for... Um, okay, so I mean, it, it, really, they are following a theme. At the moment, it is about the future of business education. The, the report that we've released most recently, it was, as I mentioned, it was called "See the Future 2020." Um, so, you know, we're looking at themes about what students are going to want further down the line. Um, we're going to be looking at how schools can meet that, you know, those desires, as we've already discussed. We're going to be like looking at, you know, what is the, the model for business education moving forward? You know, is there going to be a new type of business school? Um, and this is all stuff that we have thought about. And obviously, this study was conducted and, and the research in the study was conducted pre-COVID. Um, so, but, but it's all become very, very relevant, um, even more relevant, perhaps, in the, in the light of the pandemic. Um, you know, we're looking at the theme of blended learning. It's not a new theme. It's not something that has just come out of nowhere because of circumstances and global global circumstances. Um, but as I said, the, the COVID situation, the pandemic has really brought all of this stuff into, into sharp focus. Um, you know, what do employers want? You know, that at the end of the day, all of our research, uh, almost every report that we've done in recent years points to the fact that students are becoming more concerned and more anxious about how their business education will allow them to get the job that they need to get. And it might sound obvious, but, but I think that anxiety is, is growing globally. And, and again, the pandemic has pulled that into sharp focus. Um, and, and, and again, the skills that, that workers, today's students, tomorrow's students are going to need in order to be successful and to be able to navigate the changing workplace, because that, that's the huge, the huge question, is, as we've already discussed. How is the workplace going to, the world of work, really? How is that going to evolve? Is a robot going to steal your job? And if that happens, what are you going to do? How does, how do things change? Um, and, and how do you cope with that? Um, so those are the themes that, that we're looking at. Um, you know, sustainability is a big one as well. That's something that we've blogged on recently and we'll probably blog on again sometime in the not too distant future is how business schools operate in a sustainable way. Obviously, with the traditional MBA, you know, students these days, uh, top business schools, they're jetting all over the world to, to, you know, go to partner institutions or to to do some kind of experience. That's off the table at the moment. Will it come back? Um, And and should it come back, given, you know, the the sustainability issues at at hand? Um, Those are the questions that we're going to be looking for answer as well. Well, we look forward to reading those. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been so interesting. Uh, Absolute pleasure to do it. Thank you so much to Ian for that fascinating conversation. I'm David Woods, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA, and you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. 
We all know that innovation and creativity can take many forms. But a couple of weeks ago, I caught up with Harry Tucker, the founder of Plane Industries, who really took innovation to the next level by taking disused aircraft and turning them into furniture as part of his new business. I had a catch up with him to talk through how he did this and what the next steps will be for his organization. Well, hi, Harry. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us today for the podcast. Uh, just as we have a little bit of background for our listeners, I thought it would be quite useful if you perhaps chatted a little bit about yourself and, and your career so far to date. Yeah, yeah, hi there. No, that's perfectly fine. So what I'll do, I'll kind of rewind the last 10 years um, and give you a brief introduction to how I started playing industries. So, um, so... I grew up in Spain, I left Spain, um, I kind of randomly fell into, the, fell into the modeling industry where I lived kind of in, in London, New York and LA for a while. Um, short, you know, um, cut to the chase, I was supposed to start acting school there actually and decided to move back to Spain to see my family. Um, so I never went back, I didn't start acting school. So I wasn't sure what to do at the time and decided to start a company called Plain Industries, which is called Ford and Furniture at the time, and that's making luxury furniture from decommissioned aircraft parts. Originally, the company was called um, Ford and Furniture, but then we rebranded to Plain for a few reasons, um, and that's kind of a, a, quick, a quick, brief introduction to, to how I got into it. I mean, I think you're downplaying how interesting the company is. So effectively, you take... Um, at- aircraft that's been decommissioned you use everything from the like the the, the engines the windows and um, the seats in some cases and turn them into like beautiful clocks cufflinks wall art tables chairs i mean it's 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 super impressive but i can't imagine how you would have been able to come up with the idea to to do that can you give us a bit of background into what why planes um and, and how did you even start sourcing the materials that you need yeah, no, sure. So, um, it's funny, funny enough, actually, I'm not a, um, a plane enthusiast at all, and, and neither is my brother. So, like you said, when I went back to Spain and wasn't sure what to do, um, I came back to the UK, and for some reason, I was just thinking about creating furniture from um, unique, sort of unique materials. And I kind of then thought about using plane materials, and after doing some Googling, I remember in LA there was a company called Motorart that did a very similar thing. And when I saw what they did, it was very brash, and you had kind of the create these pieces of furniture, which were really cool, but they had sort of women draped over them, and it was for a certain audience. Um, um, yeah, so, so it gave me the idea to, to kind of go ahead and, and, and think about doing something very similar. So what I did, I contacted who now is one of our business partners, and my brother and myself, we bought a couple of plane pieces. Um, my brother was working in the city of London at the time, and he was working for a property firm, and he just hated his job. So he quit his job. We bought some plane parts. We went back to the farm I grew up on. And literally, I asked my grandparents if I could work out of this old derelict shed, which we did. Um, I had some savings at the time, which I then built some tooling, and which paid my brother and I to kind of live for the next couple of months while we were getting the business off the ground. And we really just literally locked ourselves in a room for a few months, just teaching ourselves how to make furniture. And that's how the, the company started. And the reason why I think we use plane parts is because there's always something quite fascinating with travel, and there's always something quite elegant with, with planes and the history behind the pieces. You know, when you think they've flown around the world and there's so much history to each piece, that's, I think, what really attracted our attention. And I think as well, from, from, from my perspective, and I've had a quite a good look on your website, there's, 
there's lots of places where the, the the pieces that you can create can be used from airport lounges to bars and restaurants and also in people's houses. So, I mean, you've been able to take something and really make it quite versatile for use, which, you know, when you sort of hear the concept, it's, it's hard to imagine how that translates, but it actually does so really beautifully. Yeah, and I think it, yeah, don't get me wrong, it was, a, it was a really difficult journey. So we locked ourselves in basically a way in a shed. We taught ourselves how to make the pieces. Then obviously the next step to any journey is you have to then sell it. You have to find a way, you have to find people that are interested in what you do. So we um, we signed up to, we exhibited actually our first um, range of pieces, which is a lot of clocks and coffee tables, at the Grand Design Show in NEC. And from that we kind of, got some sales. It wasn't a huge amount, but we got some sales and that led on to the business just kind of keeping afloat. And then over time, just through kind of pushing and, and creating some really unusual pieces, we managed to get more and more exposure and hence build up more and more clients. So over the, over that time, we did work for Red Bull and Ryanair and um, we've done work for Ogle Energy, General Electric. We're now doing a lot of existing for NetJet, which is a private jet company for all of their... Um, Oh, all of their customers. So the, the, the business really grew from, from, I guess, just the, an idea, but it did take a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to, to get it there. And I suppose on that journey, what, what would you say would be the, I suppose, the achievement you're most proud of um, from setting up your own organization to, to growing it to where you've got it today? Yeah, there's a few that spring to mind. In all fairness, I think you've got incredibly resilient. So I'm not going to lie, like, I, I had. Um, you know, it was a real roller coaster of emotions. So we didn't have a nest egg to fall back on. My parents didn't have a lot of money that, you know, could fund us. And it was literally a case that we had, I had some savings. I put everything into the business and there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears. There was a lot of arguments. There was a lot of kind of highs and lows. But I think the real point for me that, um, that stand out was one, actually just the, actually the highs and lows. So when the lows and lows, it's really low. When the highs are highs, they're really high, and it's such an amazing sense of achievement that you get. And, and one, another point that really stands out for me is we built this amazing drinks cabinet from an old, um, an, an old test, um, 600 pound cluster bomb. So it's, it's hard to explain, but this thing stands at eight foot tall. It weighs about, well, when it's finished, up 300 kilos. Massive thing. And so at the time, we, you know, we wanted to really add value to our furniture instead of just polishing something up and putting a bit of glass on it. We really wanted to, to create as much value as possible. So I would say a lot of our products, especially the chairs and the bomb, there's been so much engineering and time that's been invested into it. So what we did for that unique piece is, and it's 160 machine parts that go into that one piece. So it, it takes months and months to build. Um, and what happened is, is Christie's, the auction, wanted to sell it at the time. Um, and right at the last minute, even though we delivered the cabinet to them, but right at the last minute, they decided to drop out. So I had to find a place to, to put it. And so what I did, I went round all of the top galleries in London, literally just walked into each one and introduced myself, said what I did, would they be interested in stocking it? And in all fairness, maybe every single one looked to me really weird and weren't very warm, warming to, uh, to the idea. But in the end, one of the last galleries I popped into was a gallery called Me Carney, um, just opposite the Ritz in Mayfair. And the woman there at the time said that it's not something she was interested in. So I said, okay, not a problem at all, um, and, and left it at that. But the next day, um, the, uh, the next day I called back again, and funny enough, I managed to speak to the owner at the time. 
And he, and I kind of explained the situation. I said, I have this cabinet I built my brother. I'm looking for somewhere to sell it. Would he be interested? Or at least could he point me in the right direction? You know, would he know someone that might be interested? Would he know where, where the best gallery to put it would be? And um, long story short, he asked me about London and he, he loved our pieces. And we did a whole exhibition. So he took up the whole gallery and exhibited all our works for months. So that was probably one of the, that was, I think that was a point where it was a real sense of achievement to, to be able to do that. Yeah, you knew you were onto something at that stage, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just a great sense of achievement. I think it's just, you know, from, from taking something, um, you know, from an idea to building it ourselves, to then taking over um, a really good gallery in, in Mayfair, taking over a whole gallery during Design Week, I think, for a month was, was, was a great achievement, especially when we had sort of Andy Warhol um, paintings and things in there. And, uh, and yeah, it was, just, it was a really good achievement. So that was one of the, the, the bits that stuck out for me. Um, no, yeah. That's fantastic. That's an amazing story. And I suppose um, in terms of like sort of taking the business forward, how do you get your ideas to come up with, I suppose, new pieces and new products? Is it a case of, you know, just do the ideas come to you or is it a case of sort of experimentation with with different aircraft parts to look at how they could be used and, and, and reused? And I suppose it fits into the nice circular economy story as well. So it's a point that probably is very good at that. It's really good at design and coming up with ideas. Um, it's more of a looking at the parts and thinking what can we create that we really, really like or we thought was, was really interesting. And, and so, so what we decided to do, instead of just creating too many bespoke pieces, we created a catalogue of pieces and we wanted to invest a lot of money into engineering. So to give an example, um, the chair we do, the larger chair, which is the 737 Cowan chair, and it's not get wrong, it's a bit bonkers, this, this chair is massive, but just to create that chair, I think the prototype cost probably around about £30,000. Because you have to have all the uh, moulds done, the female moulds, you have to... There's a huge amount of work that goes into it. And then the first one's never quite great, so it takes sort of five or six attempts to get it perfect. Um, so it's a really a case of trial and error on certain products, but th- my brother's very much constantly looking to, to obviously move the company forward. And lately we've got into doing a lot of gifting as well. So like I said, we've started doing all the gifts for, for the clients, well, for, for NetJet's private clients. Um, which is really exciting. And then I suppose lo- looking at the sort of wider um, a- aircraft industry and, you know, sort of, you know, airlines, flights, um, fuel, sustainability is a big issue there. Um, yeah. Is that a central part of your business strategy to sort of take something that um, has been polluting and, and, and is impacting on climate change and then turning that into something that is you know, keeping it keeping it going for a sort of positive purpose, I suppose, for want of better words, you know, is there a sustainability yeah. agenda there, yeah? Yeah, definitely. I, mean, I think there's a, there's a sense that everything, we live in a chocolate society, don't we? So we can't be buying stuff all the time and chucking it away and it just ends up in landfill somewhere in some heat. So I think the idea of using something that was scrap or is not needed anymore had a really nice story to it. And we wanted to explore that even further. So, you know, we created a line of luggage actually at the time because what we found is some of these companies that are working with, say, Virgin, DBAs, a lot of the big aircraft companies, when they change the seating, which is every three to four years, the upholstery, all of the fabric goes into landfill. So every month, there's tons and tons of fabric just from one company going into landfill. And some of that fabric as well is just brand new rolls that never even been used, but it would just get chucked. So we wanted to think of a way we kind of thought that was crazy. Um, so we came up with the idea of how could we not send so much fabric to landfill and then reuse that into a high-end product. And we actually did a, so we did a Kickstarter campaign selling luggage. 
Um, and it's pretty successful. I mean, I think in the end we sold about £30,000 on, I can't remember how much we sold on Kickstarter, maybe twenty or £30,000 on Kickstarter, and then we, we sold um, quite a lot to General Electric for gifting. But the problem is, is we wanted to have it all manufactured in the UK, which there's a really, really good bag made in the UK that could do that. And we wanted to use sort of really high-end materials with it to give it that sort of high-end luxury feel. But the, the problem we had was the cost was so high to have each 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 bag made that it's just no cost. There's no money to be made in it, and we ended, I think we ended up losing a lot of money. Um, so even though we really tried to go down that road and push that, especially given the fabric side of things, that it, it is quite difficult because especially if you want to sell sell products at retailers, they have a huge markup. So you really have to be making it fairly cheap. Now, the reality is, is that's why, I guess, 99% of our stuff seems to be made in China because of that reason. But it would be lovely if we could find a way that we could, you know, make more things or more products in the UK. Um, so you're, you're saving on all the fuel of shipping um, materials from China back to the UK and, and God knows where. So I think, I think the idea is really nice. I think it would be great if we could do it more. But the actual logistics and the actual getting the price, um, getting the right price is, is a difficult one. I hear that. So, loads of people who will be listening to this podcast will be also interested in setting up their own businesses. I thought it might be useful, you know, if you perhaps wanted to share the biggest challenge that you've had in setting up your own business and perhaps offer some advice to our listeners about how they can can address a similar challenge on their own journey. Yeah, definitely. So, I think there's so many challenges. Um, I think the first one being is, you know, when we started playing industries, we were probably very naive. Which actually is a blessing because I think if you weren't so naive, you probably wouldn't start a business in the first place. Um, I think there's, there's so many challenges from, you know, you have to do everything. You have to learn how to make your account. You have to learn how to, to build the stuff. You have to learn how to manage stuff. You have to learn how to market, you know, do marketing. There's so many things you have to learn. Um, one little advice I would say is just when you start a business, it's beg by a steal. They do everything basically as cheaply as possible to start with until you can get some sales in. Um, really, you know, there's a constant progression to learning all the time. And, and it's tough, you know, but I think at the end of the day, if you're passionate about something, that's, that's what will drive you, um, is that passion. And I think if you're, you know, if you're just doing it to try and make as much money as possible, I don't think you will last that long, because I think there has to be something more substantial there. I think, you know, potentially the money will come, but it takes time. And I think you need patience, and I think you need a lot of resilience and grit. And those are probably the things that I would say you, you really have to, to, you really kind of need. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, it's not for everyone, you know. It's definitely not for everyone. It's a real roller coaster, of, like I said, um, highs and lows. However, you know, with the lows, you get some extremely great highs as well. So it's a, it's a roller coaster that's it's very much worthwhile. Absolutely. We talked a little bit about um, raising money and investment and so on, and we, we talked a little bit about Kickstarter. Um, for, for, for listeners that don't know, we have a program in the UK called Dragon's Den, which is quite similar to Shark Tank, I suppose, which is probably the international translation of that. And yeah. Harry, I know that you went you went on Dragon's Den with your brother to to present um, Plane Industries um, three or four years ago. Um how did you really find that experience? And do you think it was something useful to, to sort of, you know, go on television to speak to sort of serial investors and, and take that message to them? Yeah, so I'm on the fence with it in, in many ways. So before we went to Dragon's Den, when my brother and I first started the business, you know, what people tell you, especially if, 
the reality is, is a lot of people now want to start a business, they go, oh, I want to exit my business in five to seven years and sell it for a load of money. And that's great, and I guess in, in some businesses it might be possible, but the reality is very different. So when we started this and we had a bit of mentoring and advice on the side, because when we first started the company, we took a couple of loans from the, the Prince's Charges Trust, <laughs> Prince Charges Trust. And with that loan, they, they give you a mentor just to help you. Um, so I guess really to help make sure you can pay back the loans. Now, when you get a mentor, I guess one thing they drum into is scalability, how do you scale your business? But the sort of business that we had, it's very hard to scale in many ways. So it, it's a difficult one. You know, a lot of, a lot of people who are looking to invest into companies, looking at tech companies or companies that can really scale up, companies that will have a lot of, um, you know, um, a, a wide user base. So, going, you know, going down that line, we actually went to go and raise money when we first started through SCIS, um, with Foresight in London, and we got accepted actually. So, we got, we were going to raise £150,000 for 20% of the, of the company when we first started, but we decided not to go down that route because you're very much restricted to their business plan and the model they want you to, they, they want you to take. And the problem with being close to business is if you deviate from that business plan, you can be liable for, I think it was at the time, it was £300,000. So we decided to grow organically. However, fast forward a few years, um, Dragonstone got in touch with us actually and asked if we wanted to go on the show. Now, you know, in the investment world, I guess Dragonstone is probably a bit of a joke because if you're going to look at the raise money, you probably wouldn't go on Dragonstone. So we just saw it as a, saw it as a kind of a marketing opportunity. Um, so yeah, so, so we went on Dragon Den. Um, it, it, it was kind of good in many ways. So we sold the large chair to Peter Jones, actually, which I think was a third. I don't think anyone's ever sold my products in the show. That was quite interesting. And we delivered it to his office in London. Um, but as the show itself, it, it, it just, it's just typical TV. So you go on there, you're in there for an hour or so, you do your pitch, you go through the motions, and then literally when they're done, they put you out on the street, chuckle your clothes out, and they finish with you. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, that is, that is television for you. Um, so I have mixed emotions on that one. I think it was a good experience, and I think a lot of people saw us in Dragon Den, which is quite good, but I think the way they treat entrepreneurs probably isn't great in, in many ways. I think that's the thing. It is a, it is a marketing um, opportunity as much as an investment opportunity. Did, did the Dragons speak to you at all other than the time you were in the studio with them? Did you have a chance to, to speak to them backstage or anything like that? No, not at all. So, um, actually, it's quite funny. So, we were the first ones on, and it was up in Manchester at the time. And it was at the time of the bombing with Ariana Grande. That night, we were staying in the hotel. We were just down the road from when it happened. Um, and the next day, we went on to the Dragon's Den, and we were the first ones to set, set up. Now, we had to set the big chair and everything up. So, it took us, like, to look, I think it took about three hours. I think we kind of were in there for all of it in the process, which they weren't very happy about. But you say, no, you don't speak to any dragons. We literally set up. I remember absolutely sweating, knackered after setting all the chair and everything up and setting, you know, all the furniture up. And then I had to run upstairs, put a suit on, run downstairs, wait, and then you kind of go straight on, really. And, and you're on there for about an hour. I think you're on there for about a good hour. Um, and they kind of do the relations in the show and they introduce themselves, tell the business, and then they kind of try and pick you know, pick all your thoughts and, 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 and so forth, but, and that's kind of, that's kind of how, it, how, it, how the process works. Right. But I mean, in, I suppose in terms of marketing, like, like we said, you know, and in terms of getting that message out there, it's, 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 it can only be a positive experience. You have to take the positives from that. So, you know, oh, yeah, people saw it and, you know, we're really interested in the product. 
No, definitely. I, I don't regret anything. You know, I think even looking back now, it's been a fun experience. You know, even though um, I'm on the fence with potentially how they could treat you know, some entrepreneurs, I still think it's an interesting experience. I still, you know, still something that has been nicer than in my lifetime. Um, so for, for that, I, I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting. <laughs> So I suppose looking forward, we've, we've talked a lot about your past career from modeling to entrepreneurship and financial consultancy. What do you think the next move will be for you? Do you know what? I mean, that's really hard to say, isn't it? I, think, I, I don't think there's going to be so much of a next move for me. Um, I, I'm, I'm always interested in businesses. I really, you know, I really think that playing industries will push forward a bit more as well. My brother's kind of investing in CNC machines and investing in doing much smaller products, uh, desk accessories. Especially given the, the circumstances at the moment with COVID nineteen, I think a lot more people will probably be working from home in many ways. Um, so he's pushing the, the business forward in that regard. So yeah, I, I do on the side. I do all of my exams, my finance exams, and, and I'm quite passionate about sort of sustainable investing and, and really understanding um, learning about money. Actually, in that show, and I know that sounds quite crass, and it's not because I find money really interesting. I just think it's interesting that we never learn about money growing up at school. Or we never learn about how to grow our money in the best possible way. So I was always, you know, I wish there's been, I wish I got taught back at school in many ways, um, but we never did. And funny enough is, is, you know, when my brother and I first started Fallen Furniture Cane Industries, a couple of years into the company, even about a year in, my mum and dad were about 40 hours from losing their house and get for, for, for the house getting repossessed. And, and we had to try and bail them out at the time when I, I think I was living in my uncle's attic trying to make some money off the business and get that off the ground. So I think for me, it, you know, I think, like I said, learning about finance and learning about how to keep money and, and making it work for you was, it was really interesting me a little bit. Because I don't, I don't want my children or I don't want other people to be in that same position. Yeah. No, I completely understand. Well, that answers all my questions, Harry. Firstly, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak to us. It was so interesting to talk to you. And thank you for sharing such a, a unique and inspiring story as well that I think will be really inspirational to a lot of people. So thank you very much. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure. And um, like I said, if you have any more questions or anything, just you know, feel free to give me a call. Well, I think it's fair to say that Harry's been in a lot of adventures since launching his product. But he's been able to create something really beautiful and luxurious while also addressing the sustainability agenda, and I think that's really admirable. You can find lots of other stories about innovators and entrepreneurs on the Ambition website at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition.